Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Kendall Square, Cambridge can be taken as a model of the smart city boomtown. The question this hour is how did it sprout and what keeps it sprouting? For whom? And how did the Jurassic Park novelist Michael Crichton seem to feel Kendall Square coming on 30 years ago? And wasn't he warning his readers and moviegoers to beware? Kendall Square is, in effect, a bioscience park. Hundreds of companies and labs focused on the future in genomic medicine, meaning healthcare through reading and tweaking your DNA. Just one subway stop away from the world-famous Massachusetts General Hospital, Kendall Square models the entrepreneurial university, that's MIT, also medical science as business. The funding of scientific research and the distribution of benefits have been tortured topics in recent weeks, especially around MIT and notoriously around the late Jeffrey Epstein, a pariah for his record of sex crimes, but nonetheless a player and a big spender among the celebrity scientists at Harvard as well as MIT. This hour, a further look at what many would call an MIT masterstroke in putting the new Kendall Square together. Our guide, block by block, is the science historian Robin Scheffler, who's writing a book on what he calls Gene Town, and it's all on the map in his office. You know, it's a refrain from all the people who work in biotech around here that when I showed up, there was nothing but parking lots. And at the same time, you sort of know that there was a lot of stuff happening, but it's all literally been a race. So putting this map together was a way of sort of making it tangible and sort of getting the starting point right. The Lieber Brothers Soap Factory right here and all of these uh, row houses, this is all an area, including this, uh, a number of these streets that have now been covered over. I remember the sound that your car used to make, early 60s, I'm thinking, coming over the bridge, suddenly bump, 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 and the next thing you saw was the Boston Woven Hose and Rubber Company. Yeah. They made fire hoses, yeah. I think. Uh, there's fire hoses. There's also slaughterhouses. So there's, uh, if, like, in the early 20th century, uh, there were smell mappers who would walk around Cambridge working for the public health department. And this area was one of the most notorious bad-smelling areas uh, along the Charles because it had slaughterhouses and, and rendering activity. And, mm-hmm. of course, it's an area that was rapidly growing. Where we're standing right now, sort of on Memorial Drive, was Tideland. It wasn't actually land in any sense. And so when MIT moved, it was sort of the literal expansion of East Cambridge. So uh, with that, I'd love to take you outside and take you on a walk through time and a walk through the development of the biotech industry in Kendall Square. And of course, this entire area now is a continuous construction zone. <laughs> this tower rising up to our right is one of these new luxury residences. This expansion of the Broad, this was originally designed to be a shopping center. So this has all this glass and it sort of feels like a very new and modern building to do biotechnology and bioinformatics in, but it had been on the books as a potential uh, sort of mall with lots of retail. 
I don't know very much about the exact activities of Draper other than they were in engineering. They don't want you to know. <laughs> well, they're very much involved in defense. So much of the sort of computing electronics that was happening in and around Route 128 and coming out of MIT was oriented on making exactly one customer happy, the federal government. In 1974, MIT opened the Center for Cancer Research, which was in a former chocolate factory. It was a building that MIT had purchased and they realized they had to make a molecular biology cancer research center on the cheap. So they just sort of moved everybody into the five floors of that former chocolate factory. This is sort of a, a classic example of how larger factors can shape the development of a particular university community, particular city, because when the National Cancer Institute designates the MIT Center for Cancer Research as a cancer research center, it starts paying, I think, for the salaries of the one third of the faculty working there. So it massively expands the number of people at MIT who are working in molecular biology, really almost overnight. Suddenly, Robin, we're in the shadow, literally, of the David Koch huge building for cancer research. What does yes. that tell you? Uh, it tells me a great deal. <laughs> so one of the questions that emerged from the molecular biology revolution is how do you understand disease? Do you understand disease as a clinical problem? Do you understand disease as a public health problem? Do you understand disease as a, a research problem, as a complex puzzle, a mystery? And the Koch Center for uh, Cancer Research, which is also sort of brings together the MIT chemical engineering and biological engineering departments, is very much in the research problem school of how to think about cancer. And so it hasn't escaped the notice of many that sort of the, the Koch brothers who are tied up with a number of industries that are highly, they're suspected of being carcinogen producing, have sponsored this institute for conducting cancer research. And what I find very interesting is, yeah, the way that cancer is talked about inside these halls is very much in terms of molecular technology, designing better experimental systems for studying cancer, imaging cancer in certain ways. We're standing to the right of us right now as a set of galleries that are continually rotating with the new types of imaging technology they use for mm. tracing the growth of cells and developing these models, but not necessarily grappling with what it means to prevent cancer or to... Yeah. spread cancer care. One of the things they're very proud of in one of the labs I know is designing a mouse model of human lung cancer. So you can listen to them give a presentation for an hour of discussing this model of human lung cancer without mentioning smoking once. No images of coal mines, probably. No, no, there's images of cells, uh, <laughs> images of neurons. They have, a, they have an image of the year contest. But the reason we're standing in the shadow of the coach is I wanted to take you to this intersection, which is Vassar and Main Street, which has been called the billion dollar intersection for the volume of intellectual property created by the research institutions that are around it. You have the Novartis R&D headquarters, you have the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research, you have the Koch Institute, you have the Eli Broad Institute, you have the McGovern Neuroscience Institute, and behind us as well, you have the uh, Status Center, which holds the MIT CSAIL, Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. And so these are all parts of sort of that huge profusion of knowledge and technology innovation that Kendall Square is known for. And they're all grouped around this single intersection, which gives you a sense of exactly how concentrated and how intense the amount of work happening here on a daily basis really is. Back in Robin Scheffler's MIT office, we asked him to sum up the look and feel of Kendall Square. It glimmers with glass and steel. 
It is a environment whose buildings promise transparency and light, but are actually confusing and difficult to enter. First thing you notice is that high tech went out of the city to 128, 495. Biotech comes back. What's that all about? It's one of the most remarkable historical transformations in the innovation and knowledge economy overall. In the immediate post-World War II period, most of the companies we associated with being high-tech R&D, IBM, Bell Laboratories, and of course Silicon Valley are all places that seek out the suburbs. With biotechnology, you do see that it returns to the center, it returns to Kendall Square, and it comes down to the fact that starting a biotechnology company is much more expensive and much more precarious than many high technology companies. The costs of setting up a wet lab to do research were much more expensive than tinkering with a few semiconductors in a garage. And this meant that biotechnology firms, to the degree that they could, tried to exist on top and among of the academic and professional networks associated with universities much more than the high-tech industry ever had. You call it the billion-dollar intersection. Legal Seafood's right there. It used to be the only decent restaurant anywhere near Kendall Square, and now it's booming. Yeah, if you walk around Kendall Square, you can see a number of sites that really are a chronicle of the local and national factors that came together to allow this biotechnology cluster to flourish. You have a whole new development that's going to be the host of new laboratory and office space, which is valuable by virtue of its proximity to MIT. Across the street, you'll have the the growing headquarters of Google, but also the red brick of the Marriott and sort Mm. of a cluster of shops that was one of the first redevelopment schemes put in place to address the fact that a federal development effort to build a NASA headquarters had fallen through. And the story Uh there is John F. Kennedy, the president for Massachusetts, was overseeing the space race that NASA would open a major research center. And the city of Cambridge and MIT and the Department of Housing and Urban Development all began to clear land on the expectation that that land would be filled by the new NASA research center and also by the office suites that would house the workers and businesses that would be feeding off of that Mm. research ecosystem. And then uh, in 1968, President Johnson moved that new headquarters to Houston, leaving Kendall Square with a vast amount of undeveloped and cleared land that had once housed factories, houses, and stores. And in that vacuum, there was a lot of fertile ground, so to speak, for a new industry to take root that took advantage of being close to MIT. Connected to Richard Nixon's war on cancer. Yes, that's another factor. If you walk past uh, building E17, which is a former chocolate factory that was converted into the Center for Cancer Research, funded by, in a large part by the war on cancer. And that funding allowed MIT to grow rapidly as a center for molecular biology research connected to a very you know, dread human disease, cancer, despite the fact that MIT had none of the traditional trappings of a major biomedical research center. It has no medical school. It had no mm. traditional biology department. But the war on cancer and the money it pumped into MIT allowed MIT to sort of leapfrog all of that and become a leading center of molecular biology, which of course was the key technology of the modern biotechnological industry. We learned now that almost 50 years ago, Birch Bayh, Bob Dole, made a bill, the Bayh-Dole bill, that made universities like MIT sort of co-investors in young companies. And if they won patents with federal research money, the university would be in on the, on the benefit. Is that a good idea? How's it working? 
it's that's a so that this gets this is why it matters. Is we, we MIT in addition to being a biotech hub or a technology hub is the hub of a particular type of innovation ecosystem, and the mm. ingredients of that ecosystem are. There's a lot of them, but the commercialization of government-funded university research is definitely one of the central components. And I also think that people who feel that this innovation has been a force for good are also missing important dynamics of what, when you start using profit to focus your research. Once again, certain questions get left unanswered. Coming up, an argument that science fiction is a better guide to all this than science journalism. In particular, the case of the late fictionist Michael Crichton. This is Open Source. Robin Scheffler is writing a history of biotech in Boston, Cambridge. The mix of policy and serendipity going back to the early 1960s that culminated today in Genetown by the Charles. I asked him, what's the business model under it? that cities and countries would use to get their own Kendall Square? Many people believe that the model is simply one of getting a well-funded research university and a few venture capitalists together in the same square mile. But if anything, the history of Kendall Square shows that replicating this type of cluster is often sort of a, a unicorn uh, or a chimera. It's not something that can really reliably be done through public policy measures and is for every Kendall Square, there's five cities that tried to make a similar innovation ecosystem and had it either fail or succeed at a cost that they couldn't bear. And Cambridge tried it for 50 years without quite hitting the yeah. nail on the head. But is this more vulnerable than it looks, would you say? There is a very real risk for this cluster and others of almost becoming too successful, too expensive, too dense, and sort of losing some of the factors that had made it attractive in the first place. The model of financing, of paying for drugs that makes many of these developments that are being worked on here in orphan drugs or in late-stage cancer immunotherapy so profitable could change if the structure of health insurance changed. And indeed, there's a risk that pharmaceutical companies might price themselves into a zone of moral outrage that would indeed even drive more aggressive interest in price controls. And you can see that today because mm. the control of drug prices is one of the few issues in Washington that has bipartisan consensus. And if you read the pharmaceutical mm. industry presses, I do, they are watching it very anxiously. And we have precedent for that. Back in 1993, when the Clinton health plan was being discussed, real estate prices for lab space in Cambridge dropped precipitously really? uh, because they were afraid that some element of the pricing scheme that would be uh, yielded would, in fact, make the business model of many of these biotechnology firms unsustainable. Describe the give and take of benefits around these issues then. Is what's good for the biotech companies, good for Kendall Square, good for people, dare I ask? So this is certainly a give and take, which is something that we as a society have put together through various political decisions that have been made. And right now at the moment, I'd say that we're much more on the take side relative to the biotechnology companies, since they're taking a great deal from us and what they give is still more in the realm of promise than therapy. And we, however, also have the tools at our disposal in terms of where people decide to work and devote their talents, in terms of how companies decide to operate, in terms of the types of legislation that Congress passes, in terms of the types of research that the federal government decides to fund to adjust that balance. You spoke of an ecosystem, which which makes perfect sense around here. Who is it built for? Who's thriving here? There's, at this point, there's a few different groups that have thrived here. Becoming a biotechnology researcher takes years of effort and typically a PhD or more. So that tends to make the 
workforce a bit older. And then it's an also it's a much more international population in the sense that much of this research depends on postdoctoral fellows coming from other parts of the world. But then alongside them now in Kendall Square, you have all of the other elements that go into running a pharmaceutical company. You have the the marketing directors, you have the sales representatives, mm-hmm. and they have a great deal of money to spend as well, but they don't necessarily have to go through as much training. And when you look at the environment around Kendall Square, I'd say much of the social environment is not necessarily for the biotechnology researchers themselves, but for the uh, the people around the biotechnology industry. If you talk you to lawyers, investors, or lawyers, what? investors, marketers, people who sort of help the business run as a business, sort of the support services economy, because the people who are scientists are still spending 18 hours a day in the lab and not necessarily finding a lot of time to go out. <laughs> I noticed there is a bioscientists symphony orchestra mm-hmm. in Kendall Square now. Probably no Little League teams and no PTA either, probably. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly not a lot of schools in the Kendall Square area. If you look at the apartments that are being built around Kendall Square that are renting for extraordinary amounts of money, sort of like the real estate prices here are sort of beginning to rival midtown Manhattan, the apartments are one and two bedrooms, and typically sort of they're not the size you would expect for an apartment where you'd have a family. Rent per month, what? I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I certainly... It's more than I can afford. <laughs> wow. I knew Kendall Square 40 years ago. If we ever imagined that it could grow like this, we would have been thrilled. All sorts of cities and countries around the world would kill to have this growing in Kampala or outside Paris, for that matter. Um, Kendall Square isn't a place. It's an intersection. Hmm. And you can't create Kendall Square simply by focusing on doing things in Kendall Square. It needs to have all the other political and economic elements of this ecosystem. So really asking yourself if you want a Kendall Square is to also ask yourself, do I want to remake my healthcare sector and my economy to look more like the United States? Hmm. It means giving a great deal of importance to privatizing publicly funded research, a great deal of importance to venture capital and the demands it makes for profit Hmm. and directing where our research goes in framing disease as a molecular problem and in leaving payment Hmm. decisions about treatment in the hands of private insurers as opposed to having a broader discussion about what rights to healthcare individuals enjoy, even if they can't afford to pay for their medicine. Sum it up, Robin. You're talking about new money, a new social class in a certain way, a new ecology of modern work. What's the message from Kendall Square? So I think the important factor that sort of shadows Kendall Square today is the financialization of pharmaceutical research, Hmm. which is not simply the desire to make money from a given product, but by the needs of pharmaceutical companies or biotechnology companies to produce discoveries and profits on timescale suitable for venture capital, which typically wants to get in and get out quickly instead Mm. of investing for the long term. And that focus on quick gains and producing intellectual property rather than actual drugs has really shaped Kendall Square today. Robin Scheffler writes and teaches in MIT's program in Science, Technology, and Society, STS, the academic discipline that tries to see science in the context of culture and history. And now, the Michael Crichton version. You have to remind yourself of Crichton's standing in the high pop culture of the 1990s. He had two triple crown years in a row when he had authored the most popular book and movie and TV series, that was E.R., inspired by his own work experience at MGH. He's best remembered for Jurassic Park, 
the book and the movie, conceived in the 1980s when Michael Crichton was a visiting fellow in science journalism at MIT, hard by Kendall Square. Welcome to Jurassic Park. The science historian at Yale, Joanna Radin, introduced us to the late Crichton as the missing witness on Kendall Square, then and now. What many people knew about him was Crichton the celebrity, but few people realized that he had, yes, a medical degree from Harvard um, in the late 60s, and before that he had an undergraduate degree from Harvard in anthropology, where he studied the intersection of biology and anthropology, and it was at Harvard that he got a lot of the ideas for many, many, many of his books and movies and TV, but also where he learned how to think about science like an anthropologist. So what that means is he started to realize that science, while it produced incredible innovations and ideas, had its own culture. And you could look at the way that scientists made knowledge, the way they funded their research, the way that they argued for what questions needed to be studied, and that itself would be fascinating to readers. This was the Cold War. And what Crichton managed to do was at the very moment that Apollo 11 was happening and a manned space flight was returning to Earth was to get people thinking about what was scary about science in a whole new way. And one of the things that was really distinctive about his work is that it wasn't just about here's the fascinating things that scientists can do, although it was about that, but it was also about what's going on when scientists make knowledge. What are the fights? What are the debates? What are the anxieties of scientists themselves? And who is paying for it? The Kendall Square connections are amazingly interesting. A, because he was hanging out there in the old Kendall Square in the 80s, and he mm -hmm. seems in some way now to have conceived the new Kendall Square. What's good and worrisome about it all at once. Yes, that's right. And one of the things that I think is so fascinating about Crichton is that he's known as the father of the quote-unquote techno-thriller. And so this puts him in a kind of pantheon of people like John Clancy, um, or Tom, Clan Tom Clancy, excuse me, and John Grisham, who also take technical details from law, from military, and turn these into thrills. And I'm interested in the concept of thrill because it's both joyous and wondrous, but also scary. And Crichton was really good at channeling the wonder and the fear simultaneously to help his readers or direct his readers to organize a very uh, maybe ambiguous set of emotions about emerging science and technology. And in terms of your point that he sort of anticipated or was shaping ideas about Kendall Square, both good and bad, what interested him from the beginning is the relationship between knowledge and power. And his early work was very interested in government secrecy. And as biology began to merge with information technology and genomics arose, and we get the kind of um, biotech industry that people like Robin Scheffler are studying and that really keeps Kendall Square thriving, Crichton turned his attention to the role of the private sector. So not so much the government anymore, but, um, you know, venture capitalists and other kinds of financiers who were going to make science 
science happen fast, right? We have this um, Silicon Valley uh, maxim of, you know, move fast and break things. That's where Crichton sought to turn his readers' attention to. What's going on in Silicon Valley? What's going on in places like Kendall Square? And you know, while Jurassic Park is often seen as a novel about dinosaurs, which it certainly is, I read it as a story about um, science and capitalism. So you'll remember that John Hammond, the seemingly affable host and creator and funder of Jurassic Park, is is working um, outside of the bounds of what we might seem as normal science. He recruits um, a hot young scientist to work in his lab on Isla Nublar and says, you know, you can do whatever you want and we're just going to bankroll it and we won't deal with peer review and we won't deal with all of the kind of regulatory mechanisms that we have to shape the way scientists are held accountable. And it's that breach of um, these norms of science in Crichton's view that leads to the disasters. Um, Joanna, I got to leap in and just note that John Hammond, the character played mm -hmm. by Richard Attenborough, Mm -hmm. is astonishingly reminiscent of our own George Church of the genetic and CRISPR experiments. And it's amazing because... George Church didn't look like that when the movie was made, but Richard Attenborough somehow anticipated it. It's it's so interesting that you make that observation um, because many people say, okay, Crichton was a prophet. He predicted the future. He predicted this. But rather, what I think he was really skilled at doing was creating such plausible scenarios mm. that people consciously or otherwise brought them into being. And I I think about this in terms of like a speculative present, because many of Crichton's novels, the science that's presented in them is science that's already been published. But what he does is he fills in the gaps and creates a story with a set of cautionary tales or morality tales around this. And I wouldn't say that he's the best at depicting rich characters. He was much more interested in plot. Think about it like this. Science is really good at presenting certain kinds of facts, but science is not good or not even designed to tell us how to feel about those facts, what to do with those facts. The people that make the science, the people that use the science make those decisions. Now, Crichton was reading, He had, was remember, he knew how to read scientific journals. He was deeply interested in what was happening and, you know, coming out of the labs. And so he was reading that work and he was taking this additional step that most scientists wouldn't feel comfortable taking to say, this is what's going to happen, or this is what could happen, or this is what it might look like. And so in doing that, he wasn't predicting it. He couldn't have known, but he was filling in, um, making a plausible scenario, if you will, of what might happen. All I can think of is stupid me. I thought Michael Crichton wrote entertainments and that Jurassic Park was to get kids cuddly with dinosaurs or something. But it's clear now, as you're spelling it out, he was also delivering a warning. That's right. And it's very important for me to emphasize to you and to, and to, to the listeners that Crichton was not anti-science. He loved science. He 
loved science so much, he was deeply concerned about what he saw as potential misuses of scientific knowledge. And so it's in that sense that he gets regarded as prophetic because he was willing to make a warning. He was willing to say, if we want to preserve the integrity of science as one of the most powerful ways of knowing, then these are the kinds of things that we need to be aware of. For example, in Jurassic Park, when humans seek to resurrect the dead, and I mean, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are not the dinosaurs of um, you know the Jurassic Age. They're dinosaurs that have been spliced with frogs. So they're this new kind of cre- creation. It's a Frankenstein species, actually. Then we need to really be prepared to reckon with what it means to care for these monsters. What does it mean to care for our creations? And that was a real enduring preoccupation of Crichton. It's another close connection to George Church, who is in the de-extinctioning business with mm-hmm. mammals, the woolly mammoth most especially, but the whole idea of bringing back species. What would Michael Crichton be saying? He would say, are you sure this is the best use of the incredible power that you have? Are you prepared to care for the creations that you resurrect? Do we have a world that can support the flourishing of those resurrected species, of those creations? I also think he would ask, you know, in a world of finite resources and a world of immense problems, is this the best way to deploy those resources? Joanna, two other specifics. What would he be saying about the force of AI in our world today, which can be understood to reduce your brain and mine, everybody's humanity, to a computational process? This was actually something that Crichton was deeply interested in. So what people don't always appreciate about Crichton, that he was an early adopter of computers. He got into computing and computers through his work in biological anthropology at Harvard, where he started to use computers to look at the different kinds of measurements in skulls. He actually has several published scholarly articles on this science of craniometrics. But he got really into computing. He published a nonfiction book in the early 80s called Electronic Life, How to Think About Computers, which is basically one of the first like computers for dummies kinds of books. And much of his work was deeply concerned with questions of consciousness. Consciousness itself is often defined now as a computational process. That's right. And Crichton was deeply interested in both computers, but also the powers of consciousness to the point where he was engaged in a number of parapsychology experiments in the in the 70s and 80s, really interested in understanding the limits of consciousness as well as its potential. And so he would be suspicious of the idea that all consciousness could be reduced to computation. And he would be suspicious of the idea that we should aspire to leave our bodies, as as transhumanists advocate, to join um, the singularity, a kind of disembodied consciousness. And I think one of the reasons that he would argue we should be suspicious of this was spelled out in his 1973 movie Westworld, where basically um, autonomous androids who were created for the entertainment of humans wind up turning on them. And I think he would be warning us and saying, be careful. Once again, it's not so different than the dinosaurs. 
Coming up, a few lines to remember from Jurassic Park. This is open source. Kendall Square, Cambridge. Biotech boomtown. Ignition point years ago of Michael Crichton's imagination. As memorable as the thrills and chills in the Crichton plots are the lines that his characters speak about the coming information technology, about ethics and life sciences at large. Joanna Radin, science historian at Yale, has been thinking hard about some of the lines that resonate today. I kind of see Jurassic Park as like the Frankenstein for the biotech age in that, you know, we still are reading Frankenstein, you know, hundreds of years later. And I think Jurassic Park is going to be with us for a long time. And I guess if I had to really distill Crichton's perspective, it would be the voice of Ian Malcolm, who is the chaos theoretician in Jurassic Park, which many of the (laughs) listeners will recognize as Jeff Goldblum's character in the black leather clad cynical mathematician. Many people believe that Malcolm was um, channeling Crichton's own personal views. And Malcolm has a famous line, several famous lines, maybe I'll cite two of them that I think really are worth thinking about and that I would love for people like George Church to take seriously and meditate on. The first is a line where he's very angry at Hammond and says, you know, your scientists were so bent on whether or not they could bring back a dinosaur that they never stop to think if they should. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're you're using here. Uh, It didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. So this should line is where Crichton really wanted to direct his readers and viewers and his audience's attention. Now, the other line that Malcolm has, which is just the line of wonder. So the the first line I just quoted was the warning line. But then there's the wonder line, which is life finds a way. Listen, if there's one thing the history of evolution has taught us, it's that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but life uh, finds a way. (laughs) I love that line because I I think that it demonstrates that life will find a way, whether its creators gain control of it or not which is why it makes sense to proceed with so much caution in thinking about the ways we seek to change and manipulate life. And moreover, my own personal view, based on my studies of Crichton and the way he's been taken up, is that it's worth it to engage as many different kinds of people as possible in asking the should question. Mm. It's not enough to just get bioethicists, you know, card-carrying bioethicists, or even to just get scientists. When we're dealing with editing 
changing the genome, when we're dealing with bringing back species that haven't lived for hundreds or thousands of years, that impacts a lot of us and it impacts us differently. So I think it's really imperative in this moment for us to think as, you know, just people who are affected by science will be affected by this science about how we want to live with our creations. Speak of the kids that grew up on these books. How many of them went into science? How many loved the possibility in it? How many took the warning? Well, I don't have hard numbers, but I can say I'm one of them. Jurassic Park was the first movie I saw without adult supervision at the movie theater. (laughs) And I couldn't get enough. And I went and my friends, we read all of his books. That's what you did. And as I've started working on this project about Crichton, what's been so exciting is to realize just what a cultural touchstone he has been for my generation, to the point where people talk about the Jurassic Park Mm. generation. And One of my teachers, Mark Adams, who was a wonderful historian of science fiction and and biology, often said science fiction colonizes the future. What he meant was that you grow up reading science fiction and then those who become scientists, those are the ideas they want to bring into being, right? It's the imaginative possibilities for science are often present in science fiction, which is what makes it both, as you point out, a form of entertainment, but also an incredibly powerful way of imagining the future and bringing the future into being. So it's not, again, a prediction. It's that people growing up reading Jurassic Park thought, wow. You can do this. You can take a mosquito in amber and get the DNA of the blood it sucked from a dinosaur and bring that back. That's pretty freaking cool. Where are the dissenting biologists? Are they dubious? We have a generation of biologists that haven't been, I would just say, given permission to understand why they're doing the science the way they're doing it. They've also been very anxious about being perceived as being anti-science. I believe that it is possible, and I think Crichton isn't an exemplar of this, it's possible to talk about how science is done and to ask really critical, hard-hitting questions about the way science is done without being anti-science. And I really think that we need to do a better job of talking about how science is done, because I think that will help people to realize ways in which it could be done better. And when you involve women, when you involve people of color, when you involve people with different abilities, you get new kinds of research questions and you get new protocols. So I talk to my students about animal research and many of them have anxieties. You know, they're dissecting or killing rats or mice for the first time and they just do it, but they feel uncomfortable doing it. And It's good to give them a space to explore that discomfort, to say, well, what exactly is making you uncomfortable? Is it the killing or is it the way you're killing or is it the ends to which you're killing? We don't try to talk about whether or not this is necessarily something that should be done, but to get them to just pay attention to those feelings that come up. And what I often find when I talk to scientists about their work we very quickly get into conversations about things that they struggle with, but they don't know how to express it. 
scientists are humans, they're people too, but they've been taught to ignore the human part of them. And I happen to think that science is better when it's a whole human doing it. You say in some sense they haven't been given permission. Maybe they got to give themselves permission. I'm just thinking of edge.org, which is a kind of a bro lodge of guys, totally gung-ho, enthusiastic. I mean, their, their fundamental doctrine is that the scientists have got to take over, basically, shove these humanists aside and, and get serious. We're dealing with the after effects of what a very influential post-war thinker, C.P. Snow, called the two cultures, right? And Edge calls itself the third culture. So I would say that the third culture in that story definitely sounds like it's capitalism. <laughs> If the two cultures were sciences and the humanities, there we've got the third culture of this elite capitalist enterprise. And what I would like to see, and I think this can happen at universities, obviously I'm biased because I teach in a program that's called History of Science and Medicine. I'm based in a medical school, so I teach medical students, but I also teach a range of undergraduates across Yale's campus. I think that when we don't try to separate out the sciences from the humanities, but we teach science alongside with the various humanistic concerns, we can get something new. We can get something that doesn't see these forces as antagonistic, but rather is allowing for a, a different kind of reconstitution of the contract between what it means to make knowledge and to be accountable for that knowledge. What is the significance, do you think, of amusement parks in his work. Jurassic Park, also Westworld. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Amusement parks and Kendall Square culture, shall we say. I think that for Crichton, the theme park or the amusement park is like the literary laboratory. The theme park for him, is a place to run a scenario. It's a world. It's a universe unto itself that is kind of like the universe that we all live in, but allows for a heightened sense of emotion. But for Crichton as well, the theme park is also a place you pay to get access to. And theme parks are not cheap. Jurassic Park, to get there, was a private island. It was going to make a pretty penny for Hammond, who Hammond will be remembered, his background was in carnivals or circuses. Wow. Let's look at Westworld. Westworld was also a theme park, catering to the upper middle class, looking to put their worries aside and just be Mm. taken for a ride by science. But what Crichton is able to do by setting so many of his stories in these closed worlds is to show all of its different dimensions and features and to remind us that it's a source of profit that people are funding it and people are paying for it. So one way we might think about it is that if we're unhappy with the rides or the safety of the rides, then maybe we don't pay to go there, right? Mm. Maybe we think differently about whether or not this biotech is a ride we want to be on. Joanna, I got to ask, what is the significance of private islands in Michael Crichton's world, Jurassic Park? These hard to get to expensive places where all rules are suspended. That's a Crichton theme that's very much in the news. 
Yes. Well, I think you've just stated what it is. The island is also like a theme park. It's a world unto itself. It's a universe where different rules can apply, right? Where people supposedly can work without the hindrances that come from society, hindrances that others of us may seem as essential forms of social protection. And the fact that it becomes possible to offshore or take these kinds of modes of inquiry to a private island where you can't get to them, you can't oversee them, you're not even sure what's happening there, is an important example of how we can't just rest and say, well, these are the laws and these are the rules. Because if you have enough money, you can make your own rules. And this was perhaps the most powerful lesson of Crichton's work. We spoke of his anticipating problems with the de-extinctioning idea, Mm -hmm. with the gene editing idea, with the AI worship. Mm -hmm. What did Michael Crichton sense about the eugenics danger in all of this? The notion that we, gene editing and otherwise, can make a better man or woman. Well, I mean, in some senses, his preoccupation with who gets to determine what kinds of creations we make, be they dinosaurs or androids, you could see that as a thread of eugenic concern. I think he was deeply anxious about eugenics and very aware of the potential for a kind of return to what he saw as a very dark moment in the history of eugenics. Probably the book that I would say is the most explicit about these concerns as they apply to humans is a book called Next. It's sort of written almost like a pitch for a TV show or something where every chapter is like a little snippet of a kind of anxious sort of biotech problem. So there's concerns about breeding humans with chimpanzees. There's concerns about all kinds of eugenic enterprises that were on the minds and kind of almost ripped from the headlines from the early aughts. And Crichton saw that potential. And I think in terms of eugenics, again, he would say your scientists were so bent on whether or not they could, they didn't think about whether they should. Or perhaps the scientists assumed that because they could, they should, and that they knew the right way to deploy this technology without having to be accountable. So I should emphasize that, again, that secrecy runs throughout Crichton's work as a concern. So it's not just the manipulating of life. It's the way that it's often done without transparency. Right. I mean, that introduces the, well, I I knew we could, I thought maybe we shouldn't, but the Chinese are going to do it, so we have to do it, right? Yes. This is a theme that we see often in government narratives about innovation, that if we don't innovate, we're going to lose out. And so there's this way in which we're operating in this kind of almost still Cold War sense of, you know, geopolitical competition. But when you start dealing with technology, and I think really the bomb changed this, you know, radiation traveled far and wide, and it augmented the body in ways that were not going to be possible to fully understand for generations. And Crichton, you know, grew up in the shadow of the bomb. And so he was keenly aware of the dangers of of mutation. And I think that when a scientist in China decides to edit the genome, that's not just something that's happening in China. Immediately, it's 
about global interconnection. And I think that these narratives that if we don't do it, the Chinese are going to do it, misses the point of recognizing that when the Chinese do it, we will have done it, and we better be prepared to think about what that means. Michael Crichton was around Kendall Square at MIT in the yes. 80s. Exactly when, and what was, that was pre-Genome Project. Who were the lords of that universe then? So Crichton was at MIT as a Knight Science Writing Fellow, which is a very prestigious fellowship at MIT. And he was teaching a class actually on nonfiction writing because he had done nonfiction writing. He had just actually completed a memoir called Travels. Um, he'd written his book about computers. He'd written a number of different uh, essays and articles and book reviews. But he was there after Asilomar, which was a time of intense concern about recombinant DNA you know, and so he was deeply aware. And I believe, actually, um, I just um, was talking to a colleague of mine, Luis Campos, and he said that Crichton's Andromeda strain came up at the Asilomar conference. So Crichton was already there as a part of those conversations. But when he was at MIT in the 80s, he was writing Jurassic Park. That was Joanna Radin at Yale. And here from the movie Jurassic Park is Richard Attenborough's voice playing John Hammond, the founder of that dinosaur experiment. He's musing upon his own aspirations towards scientific and commercial mastery. I wanted to show them something that wasn't an illusion. Something that was real. Something that they could see and touch. I mean not devoid of merit. Now, now the next time everything's correctable, creation is an act of sheer will. Thank you, Joanna Radin and Robin Scheffler. That's the third of our series, Techmaster Disaster. Listen to the others at radioopensource.org. Open Source is a proud affiliate of Hub & Spoke, a collective of energetic, idea-driven podcasts. Here's another one to check out, Iconography, where the producer, Charles Gustine, looks at iconic places, real and imagined, to see what they say about us. Listen at iconographypodcast.com and check out all of the Hub & Spoke shows at hubspokeaudio.org. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath runs our Jurassic Park. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time for Open Source. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective.